This week's podcast is on diabetic foot infections, DFI. We have five learning objectives. One, to describe the pathophysiologic processes that lead to diabetic foot ulcers. Two, to contrast microbial colonization from infection in the context of the usual microbial environment of diabetic foot ulcers. Three, to identify proper technique for obtaining and interpreting cultures from chronic wounds. Four, to recognize the role of source control in patients with diabetic foot infections. And five, to manage a patient with suspected diabetic foot infections applying the above principles. Diabetic foot infections are a complication of what is entirely a non-infectious problem. Diabetic foot infections range from cellulitis to infected deep ulcers with associated osteomyelitis. As the management of cellulitis in diabetic patients is not much different than the management of a cellulitis in a non-diabetic host, we will focus this podcast on infected chronic ulcers. We know that patients with diabetes have damaged their large and small vasculature and nerve fibers as a result of glycation and reactive oxygen species from dysglycemia. In the case of foot ulcers, microvascular damage not only alters sensation such that patients lose the normal protective mechanism of avoiding nociceptive stimuli, but is also associated with autonomic dysfunction, which diminishes local host defenses. The compromised local perfusion and host response additionally reduces their ability to heal. Over time, small cuts or damage in the setting of that impaired healing prevents repair of the epidermis, leaving the dermis and sometimes subcutaneous tissue exposed. And that significantly changes the environment from a microbial flora standpoint. Intact dry skin versus a moist exposed ulcer with low oxygen tension have conditions that favor completely different microbial flora, with the latter able to host a larger microbial burden. And while gram-positive bacteria still predominate, gram-negatives and anaerobes can also survive in this environment, especially in deep ulcers. The result is that diabetic foot ulcers are frequently colonized by various organisms, and deeper ulcers, especially in patients with more progressed microvascular damage and lower oxygen tension, have even more diverse organisms present. These organisms can reside non-pathogenically, and all chronic wounds will become colonized over time, and they're all going to look bad. So the challenge becomes how to distinguish a colonized chronic ulcer from an infected ulcer. So to diagnose infection, we have to have either local signs of infection or local and systemic signs of infection. Local signs of infection include swelling, induration, erythema greater than 0.5 centimeters around the wound, increased pain or warmth, and purulent discharge. And other causes of local inflammation must also be ruled out, including trauma, gout, acute charcotic neuroosteoarthropathy, fracture, thrombosis, or venous stasis. Systemic signs of infection are those we normally expect. Fever, peripheral leukocytosis, elevated CRP, elevated acute phase reactants, and altered hemodynamics if the infection is severe enough. And just like cellulitis, we further subcategorize diabetic foot infections as mild, moderate, or severe, and the presence or absence of systemic features help us do that. Mild infections are those that affect only the skin or subcutaneous tissue and no deeper, have erythema around the edge of the wound that extends less than 2 centimeters outward, and are not accompanied by systemic signs of infection. Moderate infections have erythema extending more than 2 centimeters from the wound margin and involves tissue deeper than subcutaneous tissue, for example, tendon, muscle, or bone. They may or may not have systemic signs of infection. Severe infections are those that are accompanied by hemodynamic changes along with other systemic features of infection and may be life or limb threatening. Imaging, as well as other various tests, can help us confirm infection that we are suspecting on the basis of clinical symptoms and help us discern the depth of infection, which has implications for treatment. Despite the fact that x-ray findings lag for around 14 days, x-ray can show osteolytic lesions and other findings consistent with osteomyelitis in these patients, as the infection frequently is only detected later on after onset, since most of these patients have reduced sensation. The probe-to-bone test is very suggestive of osteomyelitis, so imaging may not even be needed for these patients where the wound probes to bone. For patients with wounds that don't probe to bone or where x-ray is equivocal, we can do MRI. 
MRI has the best sensitivity and specificity for detecting osteomyelitis, as well as additional complications of infection. So if we actually have an infected ulcer and we've confirmed depth of infection, how do we treat? Well, like always, this depends on severity of infection as well as the culture results. With some similarities to cellulitis, for more superficial and mild infections, we primarily worry about gram-positive organisms. Cefazolin or cephalexin will cover staphylococcus species and streptococcus species, which are the most likely pathogens. Staphylococcus is much more prominent in diabetic foot infections spreading from an ulcer as compared to cellulitis of intact skin, where streptococcus predominates decisively. Moderate infections can be deeper, in which case we might want to cover gram-negatives and anaerobes more broadly. Ceftriaxone and metronidazole, or amoxiclav if the patient is okay for oral, are reasonable options. For severe infections, we worry more about broader coverage, as the environment again can permit gram-negative and anaerobe involvement, and of course the acuity is higher. For severe infections, we generally use IV therapy to ensure good penetration to a poorly perfused site, in particular since these are defined as infections that are associated with significant unwellness and the patient may be hemodynamically compromised. While gram-positives are still of strongest concern, gram-negatives and anaerobes are also of concern in this setting. Ceftriaxone and metronidazole will cover the relevant gram-positive and gram-negatives along with anaerobes in most circumstances. But if we have a life or limb-threatening infection, piptazole may be needed and even mycomycin. So if we were to think of our empiric antibiotic selection in the form of a pyramid, the bottom would be cefazolin or cephalexin for mild infections. Then for moderate infections and severe infections, we would have ceftriaxone and metronidazole or amoxiclav in the middle of the pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, for patients with true life or limb-threatening infections or severe infections and a history of more resistant organisms, we'd have piptazole and banco. But remember, this is all empiric therapy. With infected ulcers, unlike cellulitis, we can actually obtain cultures to help direct therapy. So while these are our agents for empiric treatment, we will tailor subsequent antibiotics to our culture results. Cultures can help us direct therapy, but only if they're obtained properly. Culture technique is extremely important in diabetic foot infections if we're going to rely on them to direct therapy. Because these wounds are almost invariably colonized with different bacteria, it can be very difficult to distinguish colonizers from true pathogens causing infection. Right, so just having a positive culture doesn't mean anything. We actually need to have signs of infection present, and even if we have a true infection and a positive culture, this doesn't necessarily mean we've isolated the pathogen that is causing the infection. To rely on cultures to direct therapy, we need to confirm they were taken properly. So what proper technique entails is one, culture should be obtained after cleansing and debriding the wound, and two, cultures should be deep cultures, not swabs. A true tissue sample should be obtained. If osteomyelitis is suspected, bone biopsy is recommended as it provides the most reliable culture results to direct therapy, which in the case of osteomyelitis will be prolonged therapy. But bone biopsy is not logistically feasible in all patients in practice settings. So if we inherit a patient who has soft tissue cultures done and we weren't around to actually order the cultures and ensure they were taken properly, how do we discern whether it is a good quality? Well, the first thing we should try to do is confirm that the culture was taken after the wound was cleansed and debrided, because if so, this should be indicated somewhere in the chart. We can also ask the patient if their wound has ever been cleansed and debrided since they arrived to hospital, because if not, we know the culture won't be of good quality. Finally, there are also hints on the culture report itself that can tell us if it is more likely to be a reasonable culture. Right, there are hints on the culture report. When we have a culture report, it usually will give us a relative quantification of squamous epithelial cells, SECs, present, as well as a relative quantification of the number of leukocytes, or PMNs. For example, They'll say 1+, plus, 2+, plus, or 3+, plus for SECs and PMNs. Good cultures should have relatively few squamous epithelial cells, as it should be drawn from deep tissue. And there should be 3-plus leukocytes to confirm we've drawn tissue from an inflamed region. 
If the report indicates many SECs and the absence of leukocytes or PMNs, even if microbes are identified, this suggests the culture was poorly obtained and that our culture may not be reflective of the microbes causing infection. Okay, so now, there are three pathogens that we're going to talk about more in depth because they would not be covered by our classic regimens of cefazolin or for our more serious infections, ceftriaxone and metronidazole. So we need to actually think very specifically about whether or not we need to cover them. The first pathogen to discuss is MRSA. MRSA doesn't hide, meaning that if MRSA is not identified on culture, we don't need to cover it. If it is identified on culture, we should cover it. The bigger question of MRSA coverage comes empirically. MRSA should be covered empirically in patients with severe infection who have a history of MRSA or those with life or limb-threatening infections. The second pathogen we will discuss is Enterococcus. Enterococcus is a frequently non-pathogenic colonizer in wounds. If you pull literature, it is often identified on culture, especially poorly obtained cultures. When identified on culture, most especially swabs, but even soft tissue cultures, coverage of enterococcus is often not required, unless the patient is failing to respond to their initial regimen. On bone culture, however, if identified, we would ordinarily cover enterococcus. Finally, Pseudomonas. Pseudomonas is a frequent non-pathogenic colonizer like enterococcus. So when identified on culture, especially superficially or poorly obtained cultures, we do not need to cover pseudomonas unless the patient fails to respond to their initial regimen. If isolated on bone culture, we would cover pseudomonas though, just like enterococcus. In an empiric setting, we would cover pseudomonas if the patient had a true life or limb-threatening infection. Just like with MRSA, we would cover empirically if the patient has a true life or limb-threatening infection. So to recap, when would we cover the above organisms that we ordinarily would not require coverage of? So empirically, we would add coverage of MRSA or pseudomonas if the patient has a severe infection and a history of either pathogen, or if the patient has a true life or limb-threatening infection. Once we have culture results, if MRSA is isolated on soft tissue culture or bone culture, we would cover. If enterococcus or pseudomonas are isolated from bone culture, we would cover, but with more superficial cultures, we would only cover enterococcus or pseudomonas if the patient was failing to respond to the initial drug regimen. So we confirm infection is present by clinical evaluation of the signs and symptoms, and once we've confirmed infection, we obtain cultures, treat empirically, and then we tailor our antibiotic therapy to our culture results. This raises the question of how long we treat for. This depends significantly on source control and what procedure the patient undergoes. Source control is critical in these infections. Recall that the way these chronic ulcers form and become infected is partially through poor blood supply and poor local host immunologic defenses. That reduced blood supply also reduces antibiotic penetration to the site. The compromised host defenses mean that when these wounds become infected, they frequently become high inoculum with biofilm involvement and will be very difficult to eradicate with antibiotics in the host immune response alone. So our source control procedures are critical because they reduce bacterial inoculum, disrupt biofilms, and ultimately support the host in clearing the infection. There are different types of source control, including several types of debridement, like autolytic or mechanical, as well as more surgical techniques ranging from resection with some residual infected tissue to amputation with no residual infected tissue whatsoever. Yes, and treatment duration varies quite significantly based on the source control technique chosen. If we have a tissue infection alone with no debridement, it can be treated with one to three weeks of antibiotics, including oral step-down after initial response if they started on IV. But if the wound is debrided of the infected soft tissue, we may see more rapid improvement and we may be able to shorten therapy. If osteomyelitis is present, we need to treat for six weeks. But if the patient undergoes amputation and there is no residual infected bone or tissue, we only need to treat for two to five days post-op. If the infected bone is removed but there remains infected soft tissue, we would tailor our duration to the clinical response. The dictated OR notes aren't always clear with exactly what is left post-surgical intervention, so when we are unsure, this can be confirmed by speaking to the surgeon. 
We don't really need to memorize duration here because it's so variable, but it's important to know that the source control procedure is a huge dictator of duration of therapy. And when there's a question of duration, consulting ID is probably the best bet. Finally, in addition to source control, there are other non-pharmacologic treatments that are critical for both prevention of diabetic foot ulcers and treatment of infected ulcers. These include good glycemic control, smoking cessation, appropriate nutrition, proper footwear, good skin and toenail care, and wound care when an ulcer is present. To that end, engagement with the multidisciplinary team, including wound care and allied health, is key. Okay, now, rather than our usual end-of-podcast case with the clinical decision-making matrix, we're just going to do some shorter cases to practice assessing chronic wounds and cultures and making decisions around antimicrobial treatment. Mr. C is a 49-year-old male who presents with a large ulcer under his big toe that over the past several days has had increased drainage and increased redness about one centimeter thick around the margin of the wound. The depth of the wound appears to involve the subcutaneous fat, but no bone is seemingly exposed and the probe-to-bone test is negative. He has home wound care, but he was not home two days ago when they came by, so he hasn't seen them in over a week. He is afebrile and does not report chills or rigors, and hemodynamics are normal. So, question, is this a mild, moderate, or severe infection? The first thing we notice is that the patient has no systemic signs of infection. So this isn't a severe infection, and from the description provided, is not life or limb-threatening. So now we need to distinguish mild versus moderate infection. The patient's erythema is less than 2 centimeters extending out from the margin of the wound. It involves subcutaneous tissue, but not bone, tendons, or joints. So this is best described as a mild infection based on the current information that we have. So what are the most probable pathogens involved? Recall that in milder and more superficial infections, the most common organisms are gram-positive organisms. And how would you treat this patient, and for how long? This patient can have oral therapy because he has a mild diabetic foot infection, targeted to cover MSSA and streptococcus. We would look through previous cultures and ensure no MRSA colonization noted before because that could alter our treatment plan. We would then ideally cleanse and debride the wound, obtain deep cultures of the tissue, start empiric cephalexin, and reassess antibiotics pursuant to our culture results. Despite this infection not probing to bone and our plan to treat this as a mild infection, we would likely obtain MRI to rule out osteomyelitis or CT if we're at a rural site with no MRI. Unless the MRI said differently, we would then treat for 7 to 21 days pursuant to clinical response, ensuring good wound care support and increasing home wound care visits during that period. If osteomyelitis were confirmed on MRI, we would treat for six weeks. And importantly, we would also engage our multidisciplinary care team to optimize glycemic control, nutrition, footwear, and other considerations. Okay, so now for our next case. Mr. R is a 64-year-old male with poorly controlled diabetes who works in a scrapyard. He presents to hospital with a few days of fever and chills, feeling unwell. He had stepped on a nail three weeks prior that had gone through his shoes up into his foot. He had sought medical care and had the nail removed, but the wound has failed to heal. On exam, he's febrile and confused. He's mildly hypotensive with a blood pressure of 98 over 63, and he has an elevated heart rate of 128. Labs show a white blood cell count of 18, which is neutrophil predominant, and a CRP of 288. Blood cultures are drawn and pending. Mr. R has previous nasal swabs from a prior admission showing MRSA colonization. So question, is this mild, moderate, or severe infection? This patient has systemic signs of infection with hemodynamic changes. This is a severe infection. So knowing this is a severe infection, what pathogens would we be concerned about covering for this patient? In a severe infection, we would cover gram-negatives, and since he has a history of MRSA, we would ensure we cover MRSA along with our other gram-positives. Gram-negative coverage would be particularly important for this patient, as while we didn't discuss this, stepping on a nail as the precipitant for an infection means he inoculated dirt and the associated pathogens directly into his foot. If you think back to our Bugs and Drugs podcast, 
Dirt is where harder-hitting gram-negatives are found, like Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter, so we would want broader gram-negative coverage. Since he is systemically unwell, we would start with MRSA coverage and broad gram-negative coverage, but can reassess after obtaining our results from our deep culture of a cleansed and debrided wound. Okay, so podcast take-homes. One, diabetic foot infections are infectious complications of an entirely non-infectious chronic issue. Non-pharmacologic interventions and multidisciplinary care are more important to recovery than the antibiotics. Two, diabetic foot ulcers are invariably colonized with different bacteria. Signs and symptoms of infection are necessary to diagnose an infection, not a positive culture. Three, when infection is present, culture technique is critical to ensure we isolated the pathogens that are actually contributing to infection. Culture should be obtained after cleansing and debridement from the deep tissue of the wound and should never be a swab. Four, diabetic foot infections may be mild, moderate, or severe. Mild infections can be treated empirically with cefazolin or cephalexin. Moderate infections can be treated with ceftriaxone and metronidazole or a moxclav if the patient is okay for oral antibiotics. And severe infections can be treated empirically with either ceftriaxone and metronidazole or if it's a true life or limb-threatening infection with vancomycin and piptazo. In all of the above circumstances, we would reassess our antibiotics pursuant to culture results. 5. Duration of therapy for a diabetic foot infection depends on the source control procedure. Infectious diseases consultation can help with nuanced decision-making around duration. And that concludes our Diabetic Foot Infection podcast. Our next podcast will be on urinary tract infections.